Hello again, my friends. Welcome to another round of Deep Dives with Father Sean, the Super Catholic Catechesis Podcast. This is brought to you by my love of the catechism. I am very inspired when the catechism said, Deep time times of renewal in the church are also intense moments of catechesis. That's why I'm doing this, to bring about renewal through some good learning, some good education here. Um, you know, Christian life is more than just filling up the brains. Ultimately, it's a thing of the heart and our choices and our union of our our will with, with the divine will. And yet at the same hand, putting good information in our heads is at service of this. There's other things that are at service of this, and this is one thing that I can do, and I'm happy to do it. So I love it. I love it, love it, love it. So we're here in this scripture series, and last time we addressed kind of just kind of how it was all written, how things were put together, kind of the complications of the Old Testament. I kind of sidestepped some of that stuff. If you want to get into more about that, read read the story of the flood of Noah, and you'll ask yourself, well, how, what did God command about how many animals to put on onto the boat? Uh, because typically we think, oh yeah, a pair of every kind, male and female, but it's not so easy. Uh, and then also the New Testament, kind of moving from the events of Jesus to the oral tradition that was carried forward and slowly put into writing in fragments, perhaps fragments, we don't know all the details of it all, um, then ultimately kind of put together in the books that we have today. Uh, so I think that's super helpful to see kind of how dynamic the Holy Spirit is because these are all 100% inspired and yet it's also 100% man-written, 100% divine-written, 100% human-written. So that's pretty crazy how God could do such a thing, but I think that gives a little bit of a, a flavor of how God interacts with humanity, always through uh, human beings fallen human beings, but he works out his bigger plan through us. Pretty amazing. So today we're going to talk about how we came to figure out that we got the, how we figured out that the Bible that we have today is, is totally inspired. So um, we're going to kind of walk through that story. Uh, last week, the, the primary thrust was kind of asking which came first, the church or the Bible? And we concluded that was, in fact, the, the church that came first. And without the church, there would not have been a Bible that was written because the people who wrote the Bible were members of the church. <laughs> and uh, so that's kind of a big deal. And a number of those didn't even meet Jesus in the way that uh, you would meet someone down the street from you. Um, but at the same hand, they are part of this apostolic age uh, and this time of inspired writing came to a conclusion with the death of the last apostle john today we're talking about how these books came to be collected into what we know as the canon of scripture but before we get into that let's begin with a prayer in the father son holy spirit amen lord jesus we love you and we adore you it is a blessing to discover you more deeply through your holy word through scripture through these these this voice that continues to echo in our minds, and our hearts, in the church. Help us to, to open our ears to hear this voice, open our hearts to, to receive this voice, and may our lives be conformed to your life, dear Jesus. We pray this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. So today, the big question I guess we'll be asking is, how the heck do we get the Bible? <laughs> you know, there's a bunch of little miscellaneous books. How, why don't we have some of these other books? Or why were all these included? I don't get it. I don't get some of these books. And perhaps maybe a particular teaser would be 
why is the Protestant Bible different than the Catholic Bible? You know, there's a there's a question for you to wrap your mind around. It's <laughs> kind of what goes, you know. We have, in fact, a different Bible. Most of it's the same, but it's just different. So um, we'll talk about that. So let's begin with the Old Testament and then move to the New Testament. Um, in the Old Testament, the Catholic Church understands there are nine, 39 books, 39 books in the Old Testament. Excuse me, that's the Protestant version. 39 in the Old Testament. The Catholics believe that there are 46 books. So there is the the standard Hebrew version of Scripture. That really wasn't defined, however, until the year 100. So, you know, a good 60, 70 years after Jesus' death. Uh, before then, you know, it was very common to, you know, in, in, when you're in synagogue, when you're learning about scripture, it would always be in Hebrew. It would always be in Hebrew. However, outside of Hebrew, they would commonly use the Greek version of the scripture just to kind of know and understand it. And also, you know, in the last, well, I guess the couple hundred years before Jesus and then beyond, there was a group of Jews called the Diaspora Jews. So they lived in the diaspora in, in this outside of Jerusalem, outside of the Holy Land, outside of Palestine, outside of Israel, however you like to call it, they're living in other places. And that's, by and large, Greek places. They spoke the Greek language. Not to say that they were in Greece itself, but like the north of Africa and Egypt, there used to be a city called Alexandria, or maybe they lived in Ephesus, which is now kind of demolished. It's not really a, a town anymore, and it's just excavations. But there were, that was, I think, the third largest city in the Roman Empire. So it's kind of a hub of Jews in the diaspora. Now think about this. Paul was going around the Mediterranean and he wasn't going and looking for for pagans. He did end up looking for pagans, but usually his touchstone was going and hanging out at the synagogue. And these synagogues were in the diaspora and they would do much of their study of scripture outside of the synagogue in the Greek language. Now in the Greek language, there was an official translation of these originally of these documents originally written in Hebrew okay so this is important to recognize it's important to recognize and so these were translated into the Greek there seems to be a group of 70 men who came together they they cheered each other on they talked it out and they came to an official translation of the Old Testament and we know this as the Septuagint and that that has the origin of excuse me that has the root of the word 70 in it to recognize it came from these 70 translators uh, sometimes people will say that they were inspired other people would say that this translation is not inspired and I don't think the Catholic Church has weighed in on that but they do have a particular relevance just to give you a little bit of flavor of that in the New Testament there's approximately 300 citations of the Old Testament. Okay, so 300 times, plus or minus, did the New Testament have some kind of quotation of the Old Testament. And approximately two-thirds, two-thirds of those citations are directly using the official Septuagint translation. Okay, so this is a big deal. This is a big, big deal. If you're a New Testament writer, you're either going to make your own translation in your brain from the Hebrew, but you wouldn't do that as often as you would just 
pull out the translation from the the Septuagint because of kind of respecting that. So it's kind of a big deal. It's kind of a big deal. And so the the early church began to use that Greek version as kind of a primary touchstone, uh, kind of a center of their of their usage of the Old Testament. And then even they would use these other sacred writings that were not necessarily clearly inspired at the time the Jewish people were, were using it. They were recognized to be special, perhaps even sacred, but not necessarily inspired, or at least inspired at the same level. It seems like there's there's kind of like a super interpretation for the Pentateuch books, and then there's also kind of just a standard interpretation. Uh, standard inspiration for some of these other things and then somehow these other books got worked into them so these other books that the jewish people might not to be recognizing as quite as high as the the early church would be the book of tobit the book of judith first and second maccabees wisdom syrac and baruch so those seven books we know them as the deuterocanonical books the deuterocanonical books which means the second canonical books. Before I go too much further, it's probably helpful to mention why we call this the canon, the canon of Scripture. This word canon comes from uh, essentially the old word for a yardstick. Obviously, they didn't have a yardstick, but they used canes, you know, plants, kind of sticks, if you will, to have a standard form of measurement. And that's got a, that got adopted into this. And now what we have in the canon is in fact our measuring stick of faith. You know, if if we were to believe something, it can't go against our measuring stick of faith. You know, it can't go against the canon. Uh, and when we talk about these deuterocanonical books, yeah, we're talking about them as being part of the canon, but they're kind of a, uh, a, a not a second edition even, I want to say, but they're, they're recognized to be distinct from that original uh, Hebrew set of, of books. Uh, just kind of a fun fact here also. There are Esther was part of the original Hebrew Bible. Daniel was part of the original Hebrew Bible. Um, but there are some additions that were made to both of those that were not recognized in the Hebrew Bible. But they were just kind of, I don't, it's not terribly clear to me, at least, if they were added on or if they were originally part of it. Daniel seems to be a very Greek book. However, there was... Um, I think there's been suspicions that it was originally written in Hebrew. I'm not an expert on this stuff. It gets complicated. It gets complicated. But what I want to say is there was the standard Hebrew version, and then there was the standard Greek translation of that, and then floating around with that standard Greek translation were these other seven books that we now know as the deuterocanonical books. And altogether, these Old Testament books, Hebrew and Greek, were used were used by the early church fathers so they clearly adopted them as part of the canon so this is where our tradition leads you know there's no book of the bible that says these are the books of the bible you know i i can't point to myself and say hey look i'm a priest because i say i'm a priest no i'm a priest because <laughs> people were there at my ordination to say yep uh, i saw the bishop put hands on him he is officially a priest you know if the bible said hey I'm the Bible because I say I'm the Bible. You know, that's just a little bit of a, a circular 
circular argument. That's a circular argument. It, it, I'm right because I say I'm right. That's not right. So there has to be some other source of authority outside of the Bible to point to the fact that this is the Bible, this is the official um, set of inspired works that we recognize to be the kind of the measuring stick of our faith. Uh, just another comment on the word Bible. I think last time I made a mistake. I think I may have had a reference to it as meaning library, but it means little books, little books, it's kind of like a collection of little books. Uh, before I move to the New Testament, there is something else I want to add. Um, there is a movement in the after Christ to get rid of the Old Testament. Uh, there's a man named Marcion. Uh, not a ton of stuff is known about him, but he wanted to throw away the Old Testament. He's like, nope, that was the old God. Uh, that's the mean God, the God of the Old Testament. But we're now in the time of, of Jesus, and we believe in a God of the New Testament, a God of mercy, not a God of wrath. But that's even not an accurate depiction of the one true God who is the God of the Old Testament and the New Testament because he's a God of mercy. You know, one of the fundamental revelations of who God is was with was when Moses went up on the mountain and he wanted to see God and God said, nope, you can't do that. You can't see my face and live. What I'm going to do is I'm going to pass by you, cover your face, and I'm going to let you see my backside after I pass. <laughs> so that happens, and it's such a dem an incredible experience that when he comes down the mountain, his face is glowing with glory, and the people can't look at him because it's so dang bright. So it's pretty incredible. But in that moment, he hears that he hears seven different qualities. I can't quote them. I don't have it pulled up in my head here. But this is your God, the merciful God, the forgiving Father, the all these different merciful qualities uh, there were six of them, and then the last one is something about kind of the one who's uh, holding his children accountable, which is allusion to his 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 anger. Um, but it's six qualities of mercy, and then for those who are not accepting his mercy, he will be stern with. He's a serious God, but that doesn't mean he's not a God of love. Um, so we have that in the Old Testament very clearly, and the prophets hit on that very, very clearly. Um, it's it's there from the beginning. It's there through the end of the New Old Testament. So that's why we keep the Old Testament. The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. Uh, I think there are some groups of Christians who kind of put the Old Testament on the back burner. And isn't that just sad? That's just sad. It's like, no, there's so many great stories. You know, if you want to know Jesus, you kind of got to know his family background because when he preaches and teaches and acts, he's doing this specifically within the context of his family background, the Jewish background. And if you don't know the Old Testament, you're not going to know Jesus as well. It's just how it goes. At least not in your mind. You might have that, that deep knowing of him uh, in your heart, but uh, the knowing of him as he revealed himself in that fullness is going to be lacking fairly substantially. So anyways, that's the Old Testament. Now, <laughs> before I get to the New Testament here, I want to highlight why the Catholic Bible is different than the the Protestant Bible. So when Luther kind of got going in kind of separating from the Catholic Church, the Universal Church, um, into kind of a more distinct sect, and then other sects kind of continue to splinter off. Kind of once that box was opened up. The division just kept on expanding. 
Um, and so he had to assess the situation. Okay, we don't believe in tradition anymore. We can't really point to the place where it says in the Bible that these are the books of the Bible. And so he goes back and tries to find as much of an authoritative acceptance of Scripture that he could that is not part of the Catholic tradition. And the best that he could come up with was was what the Jewish people said. So instead of opting with kind of the universal Catholic tradition from the very beginning of the church, he opted to go back to those Jewish roots, um, which were clarified around the year 100 to exclude some of these books that the Christians considered to be inspired. You'll have to ask Luther or someone who follows Luther for more information about that, but he did make the decision to move away from that, and that was accepted by the the broader Protestant community. So they do not have Tobit, they don't have Judith, they don't have First and Second Maccabees, they don't have Wisdom, they don't have Syrac, they don't have Baruch, and they don't have some of these editions in Esther and Daniel. So they have 39 books in the Old Testament, and the Catholic Church has 46. I say the Catholic Church, I'm also talking about the Coptic Church, I'm also talking about the Orthodox Church. I mean, the ancient churches have maintained this tradition because it was just kind of universal. Everyone used, um, everyone used these books back then, um, but that's not the case nowadays. Let's jump to the New Testament now. So, the question was, well, what books do we include in the New Testament? You know, do we even have a New Testament? Uh, what do we know is authoritative or authentic or trustworthy because recognizing a work to be inspired is different than recognizing it to to teach something that's true because you could teach something true but it not might have that fullness of inspiration so do you, you follow that distinction there me as father sean o'brien i can write something that is 100 percent true um there are three persons in one god and that's the mystery of the holy trinity so that's true. All that's true. It's not very long. It's not a book, but it's true. Now, am I inspired in saying that? Probably not. So <laughs> I can say something true, but that is not inspired. I can write something down that's true, but it might not necessarily be inspired. And so they were thinking, well, what is inspired and what's just simply helpful and true? And so they had to address this. You know, they did a pretty good job in recognizing the four Gospels. Uh, there were the standard four Gospels. Uh, St. Irenaeus of Lyon in the year 180 gave credibility, or first gave recognition that there were four standard accepted Gospels. And then it was pretty well commonly understood also that that St. Paul's writings were, were super important and relevant to have in the New Testament. They seem to be very inspired. But there were some other works that were in question. Um, some of them that some people put into skepticism were the letters of the Hebrews, the letter of James, the second letter of Peter, the third letter of Peter, the letter of Jude in the book of Revelation. They're just a little bit more complicated or not as significant or they didn't know how to understand it exactly. So there was some skepticism around that. There was also some curiosity around some of these other works. There was a, a work called The Letter of the Shepherd of Hermas that was great. It seemed to be all true. didn't seem to have any errors in it. But just because it doesn't have errors in it doesn't mean it's inspired. 
There was also the Didache, which means the teaching of the Twelve Apostles. This was written uh, before the year 100, maybe before the Gospel of John, probably before the Gospel of John, I would say. And so how does that fit in there? When it was written before John wrote his Gospel, you know, what's going on there? And it all seems to be true. Maybe it's authentic. Maybe it's authentically inspired. Uh, you know how things went. Um, some of these were not accepted. Others were accepted. Uh, some of the players in this dialogue were, <clears throat> you know, there were a lot more than just who I'm mentioning now, because I'm sure this is something, you know, as as these ancient church fathers were sipping on a, a wine together, talking about, well, what do you think is canonical and what is not canonical? Clement of Alexandria, Origen, Augustine, Jerome, they all kind of had to say in all these different things. Um, and ultimately, it was clarified, I don't know what clarified, but uh, an authoritative list was put out by Athanasius, St. Athanasius of Alexandria in the year 367. And it did he did decide to accept Hebrews, James, 2nd and 3rd Peter, Jude, and Revelation. And he, just, he did decide to reject the shepherd of Hermas, Didache, the first letter of Clement. That was also another question. And he didn't do it just because he thought about it, but it's because he just saw that this is where the church is going. He was able to discern that tradition, uh, keeping in tune with the Holy Spirit, that was the inspiration, source of inspiration for these works. And in that inspiration, he was able to develop upon that, uh, on that tradition that was already established. He could just now discern that tradition. So, once he put it down on a paper, he was such an influential figure in the church at that time that it really became pretty substantial. And so Pope Innocent I, he contributed to the substantiality of the claim for the full canon of the Bible in, let's see, I think it was the early 400s. So just you know, within 50 years of Athanasius publishing this list. And he, he published this list in response to the bishop of, oh, where was it? It was somewhere in France. I can't remember where it was. Um, and he says, oh, yep, you're asking about which of these works are canonical? Well, let me tell you. We're, we're pretty settled on, on these 46 books. The, excuse me, not 46, 73. The 46 in the Old Testament and the 27 in the New Testament. And based on that, we got the Bible today. We got the Bible today. How cool is that? But again, you know, which came first, the church or the Bible? And the Bible was written by people in the church. And later on, as the church decided or was discerning which books were in it, well, the church was the one responsible for the discerning process to determine which little books make up of the Bible, the official Bible here, the canon of the Bible, the this measuring stick of faith that we can't believe anything that the Bible contradicts and that we can find all roots of our belief in the scripture one way or another, even if it doesn't state it clearly. So I hope this is helpful, you know, just to get a little flavor, get a little flavor. This is a very human process here. It's 100% human, but the amazing thing is, is that it's 100% divine. This discernment in the Holy Spirit is based on the Holy Spirit living in the tradition of the church, or rather being the tradition of the church, and it slowly unfolds over time. They couldn't fully appreciate where the, the fullness of this tradition from the beginning, 
but through time, through saints, through holiness, through probably a lot of conversations and letters back in the day, they, they hashed it out, and we do have the canon of Scripture. So it's pretty pretty cool, pretty awesome. Well, I thank you for tuning in. I give praise for your listening. If you find this helpful, pass it along. If you want to write a review, you are welcome to do so. And if you want to just stop listening, you know, do what you do, you know. <laughs> but I hope this is helpful. I think it is. Uh, God bless you. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Amen. See you the next time as we talk about some key ways of interpreting Scripture. Bye.